And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. And I began to weep greatly, because no one was found worthy to open the book or look into it. One of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing, as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took it out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken the book, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lord, before the, before the Lamb, having each one a harp, and a golden and golden bowls of, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, "Worthy art thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain and didst purchase for God with thy blood men from every tribe." and tongue, and people, and nation. And Thou hast made them to be a kingdom, and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. And I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, and the living creatures, and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads, and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain, to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. And the four living creatures kept saying, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This may be the most thrilling chapter in the Revelation. All eyes are on that book that's held in the right hand of Him who sat on the throne. It has writing on the outside and on the inside, signifying that it is filled with meaning and importance. And everything that's written there is secure. It can never be altered or changed. Thus, the seven seals, the seven, number seven, being the most uh, sacred number to the Jews. What is this book? One says that it is a book of judgments or justice. Another says that it is the divine counsel, the foreordained Uh, purposes of God. Another says that it is a book of destiny. The latter is the most acceptable. It is a book of destiny. And it answers the question that is the most important question of life. Who controls the destiny of my life? That's the question of verse 2. And it's the question that everybody asks, who controls the destiny of my life? Now, you, you're probably saying, I don't know if I've ever asked that question or not. Yes, you have. 
Whether you know it or not, in some form or fashion, you have asked the question, who controls the destiny of my life? That is, what's going to happen to me? And I suppose today, more than at any other time in years or decades, we're uh, asking that question as we become aware of the, of the crucial conflicts that exist in the world, explosive in nature. How's it all going to come out? And who controls the destiny of my life? And John begins to weep because he sees no one who is worthy to break the seals and open the book. And implied therein is that the one who is able to open the seals and break the seals and open the book, the one who is worthy to do that is the one who is worthy, who controls the destiny of your life. And John weeps because he sees no one able to do that. And one of the elders stands and says to John, Stop weeping. For there is one, and only one, who is worthy to control, to handle the book that controls, that contains your destiny. And he is the lion that is from the tribe of Judah. The only time I weep is when I forget that the book of my destiny is in the hand of our Lord. And John describes him. He says he has seven horns. Now, folks, it would be absolutely ludicrous for us to say that Jesus had horns, literally. And you biblical literists take note. He's not saying that Jesus had seven literal horns. Horns were symbols of power. And he's saying that our Lord, who controls our destiny, is omnipotent. He has all power. And He has seven eyes, which means that He has all knowledge and they go out all over the earth. He is omnipresent so that the one who controls your destiny is the omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent Lord. And He's giving us the secret of success. And He's saying that you will succeed in life as long as you do not forget to let the Lord hold your destiny and you fail You fail when you try to wrest the control of your destiny from the hand of the omnipotent Lord. He is the only one who is worthy to control our destiny. Now, how is that true? Why is it that He is the only one who is worthy to control the destiny, to hold the book of our destiny? Well, He gives three reasons. First, because of the death that He bore. And so He says in verse 9 that He was slain, the Lamb as had been slain. The one thing this book never lets us forget is the death of our Lord. The one reoccurring theme that appears in this book is the Lamb whose blood was shed, and through that shed blood our redemption. And it goes all the way back to the primal garden where man sinned, And there had to be an innocent animal slain so that his sin could be covered. And a principle was established that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. It's the one message Satan hates to hear. It's the one message the world stops its ear to, that is, the death of our Lord. And Paul says that the preaching of the cross is to them who perish foolishness. Do you believe that a man who clings to the cross is a fool? Then that means you're perishing. 
Now there are two things about this death. It was a violent death. The Greek word there for slain is a word that means literally to slash the throat violently. When Isaiah the prophet began to describe the impending death of the suffering servant, he said, so violent was his death that if you had not known beforehand that it was a man, you would have not recognized him as a man. What he's saying is that when they finished brutalizing our Lord, he was unrecognizable as a man. Have you ever wondered why? His death was so violent. Well, if you were a physician and you looked at sin through the eyes of a physician, you might see sin as an illness. Some have. If you looked at sin through the eyes of a teacher, you might see sin as ignorance. But if you looked at sin through the eyes of a righteous judge, you would see sin as lawlessness. So that when Jesus died... He didn't die as a diseased man or an ignorant man. He died as a criminal. He became sin for us, lawlessness for us. He wasn't a sinner, but He became sin. And thus God poured out all His wrath on Him. Violent was His death. It was a victorious death. I hope you noticed in verse 6 that he said, I saw the Lamb as had been slain standing. Notice that. Underline that word, standing. It's the position of action and power and authority. Now when Jesus was crucified and raised from the dead, the New Testament describes Him in two positions. One says that He was seated at the right hand of God. It means completion and fulfillment. He cried it from the cross, It is finished! Teletelestai. And had his hands not been impaled to that cross, his, fierce would have, his fist would have pierced the darkness. It is finished! Complete! And he sat down at the right hand of God, in essence saying that all that was necessary for man's redemption was finished over complete. But when John sees him, He's not seated at the right hand of God. He's standing. He's standing. Now, I was intrigued by that. And I began to investigate, and I found that in every, every case except one, without, with one exception, after Jesus was raised from the dead, prior to His ascension, it pictures Him as standing. And His disciples were in the upper room, and He came and stood in their midst. And Thomas was not there, so he came later again and stood in their midst. And they saw him on a seashore from that little boat in Galilee, standing there. The only time he reclined after his resurrection was when he was sitting at meal with the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then to convince them that his suffering was sufficient for their salvation. It's the position of action and authority. Victorious is his death. I'll not forget the day I buried my father. On a blustery, cold February Monday, we put him in a grave. My friends were there from, from Tulia. I was pastor there then. Many of them came to, to love me and to be there. 
The old folks that I'd known and grown up with as a child were there. And we went from that grave back to my mother's house. I had to leave and go straight back to my church for responsibility that very night. We gathered my family, my mother, my sister, my brother. And we began to separate the things that, that were precious, these little symbols that these little things that belong to Him, we begin to give to one another. And, 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 and while we were doing that, I would have been shocked beyond amazement. I probably wouldn't have been here. I'd been dead with a heart attack if my father had stood in our midst. What an incredible day. These disciples gathering in the upper room, they had seen Him dead. And there He stood in their midst in the position of action and power and authority. And He said, in essence, men, Christianity is a faith of action. Now go into the world. Victorious is His death. He is worthy to open the book because of the death that He bore. Second, because of the redemption the deliverance that He brought. Now verse 9 says that he purchased, he purchased you for God. If you have a King James, it's probably He redeemed you. It's the word that means del deliver, and it's a twofold deliverance. Listen to me. It's a deliverance from sin to God. It's a deliverance out of the hand of sin and Satan into the hands of God and salvation. It's a deliverance from and to. And that's why Paul speaks of the fact that you are his inheritance. You are what he gets out of this suffering his son bore. You know what makes God rich? Somebody said, I know why God is rich, because the cattle on a thousand hills are His. You bought any stakes lately? It's not the fact that God owns the silver and the gold that makes Him rich. It's you who make Him rich. You're His inheritance. And you're trophies that our Father will one day display to the ages that testify of His power and grace. You make Him rich, and because you make Him rich, He makes you rich. That makes you rich. For anything that goes out of your life to God comes back to you tenfold. And you're rich because you've made Him rich. For the value of an object, the value of a thing, is determined by how much it costs and who owns it. The year is 1941 and the place is Auschwitz death camp. From the years 1940 to 1945, four million Jews were exterminated in Auschwitz death camp alone. In 1941, a man by the name of Maximilian Cobb was arrested. Maximilian Cobb was a Franciscan priest who was smuggling the Jews out of Hitler's Germany and was caught and sent to Auschwitz. In July of that year, 41, there was an unsuccessful attempt to escape from Auschwitz death camp. And the rules of the camp were that when there was an attempt to escape, ten people had to die. Ten chosen at random, arbitrarily. And so they got all the people out in the, gar in the yard. And the SS troops began to thumb through the roll of the people of the death camp, just arbitrarily. And, and they were just thumbing through the roll, and they called this name Francisic Gnapczyk. Gnapczyk was a, a sergeant in the Polish army. 
And when he heard his name called, he, he almost fainted and he cried, Have mercy! I have, a, I have a wife and children. And for some strange reason, unknown yet, when Maximilian Cobb said, I'll take his place, the SS troops permitted it. And they took Maximilian Cobb and nine other men down to the basement and they starved them to death. On August the 14th, they went down, eight of them were dead, Maximilian Cobb and one other man were still, was still alive, and so they injected into the muscles of their heart a drug, and they died instantly. Gnapchichik lived and survived Oswich. He now lives in a little white frame house in, in Warsaw, Poland. In the backyard of his house, he has a monument erected to Maximilian Cobb. And every year on August the 14th, he takes that three-hour journey to Auschwitz and he stands in the memory of the man who took his place. Everything in this room, including you, is a monument to the man who took your place. And everything in this room, including you, is a testimony not only to the man who took your place, but to the value he esteemed you. Your worth because of what you cost. And your worth because you belong to Him. The value of something is determined by the one who owns it. If you go to Browning Library and Baylor University campus, you can go in there and see a little lock of hair in a glass case guarded by an armed security guard. Just a lock of hair. Now, if Marcia cuts my hair and it falls down on the ground and she gets a broom and sweeps it in a dust, dust bucket and throws it out. Nobody's got my lock of hair in a glass case guard by, guarded by a security guard. Why? Because the value of that hair was determined by the one to whom it belonged. One of the greatest men in the history of literature, it belonged to Browning. Let me tell you how, what makes you of worth because you belong to him. Listen to this. If He purchased you for God, it means that He, you are His gift to the Father. But if you turn to the sixth chapter of the book of John, you'll find an amazing statement. Jesus said that you're the Father's gift to Him. So that you're Jesus' gift to the Father and you're the Father's gift to Jesus. Are you of value? That same night that we divided up those things that belong to my father. We came to this little straight razor. I used to have it in, a, in my office. It's now in my den at home. This straight razor. My mother said, Gerald, your dad wants you to have this. He knew that I loved antiques. He said, your dad said when he died, you get this. Belonged to his dad. And now they gave it to me. Now, I don't know how much a straight razor is worth. If I, probably, if I went to an auction show, I might get $25 for it, maybe 50 maybe 100 But let me tell you the truth. I wouldn't sell it for a million dollars. It's the Father's gift to His Son. How much are you worth? How much is the Father's gift to His Son? He is worthy to open the book because of the deliverance 
that he bought and he gave you to the Father. One last thought, please. He is worthy to open the book, not just because of the death he bore and the deliverance he bought, because, but because of the dominion he bestows. And he said, he has made us, and it means to bestow upon, he has made us kings and priests, kings and priests, and we will reign in this life. Kings and priests. Now there's some who say that that's a reference to the millennial reign. I don't think so. John, uh, Paul says in Romans 5 that we will reign in life. I like the Williams translation of that. It says, in this life we live like kings. Because of what He did, because of the dominion He bestows, we have a king's life. We live like kings and priests, and a king has authority and dominion, and a priest is one who has direct access to the Father and can take others with Him. Oh, the glory of that. Now, I'm not a world traveler, but I love to go to England. made my fourth trip to England this spring. I'd live there if I could. And I don't understand royalty, how those people could revere a queen. Even the poor revere her and hold her in the highest esteem. I don't understand how that could be. But I do, know, I do understand enough about royalty to know that that queen has unlimited resources, wealth. We saw the jewels. I mean, she owns the kingdom. She has unlimited wealth. She has unfettered freedom. She can go anywhere she wants. And because of the right of royalty, she has dominion over everything that would impoverish and tyrannize her. When John said, when he saw this vision, he being persecuted with other Christians on the Isle of Patmos, that he gives dominion. He meant that in Christ Jesus, we have unlimited resources. We have unfettered freedom and we have dominion over everything that would oppose or oppress us and we have direct access to God. And thus, thus he cried out in exultation, to him be glory and honor and dominion forever and ever. Like the little old woman who said to Charles Spurgeon, if God saves me, he'll never hear the end of it. About 200 years ago, this story, and I'm through, a man climbed up the steps of a monument in the industrial ghetto of Liverpool, England called the Market Cross. He climbed up in the monument, the steps of that monument, and he leaned against that cross and he looked out over this teeming mob of people, the oppressed, in the cycle of poverty and despair, and his eyes and ears were shocked by what he saw. He saw suffering and filth and deprecation of humanity. And his eyes heard the cursing and the drunken brawl of people who were caught in the cycle of despair. And Charles Wesley began to sing a song that he had written on the anniversary of his first year as a Christian. And because he's, his words were put to the tune familiar to every Briton, they all came to attention. Oh, for a thousand times.
tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. He breaks the power of counseled sin and sets the captive free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. Who holds the destiny of your life? The lion from out of the tribe of Judah who was slain so that he could present you as a victorious gift to the Father and make you live like a king in this life. your need this morning. And the challenge I bring to you is this, that you put the book of your life, your destiny, by faith in His hands. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, I challenge you to come today. There are two young men in the early service who came and professed their faith in Christ. I challenge you to come this morning and place the destiny of your eternal soul into His hands by faith. I challenge you this morning to return to His grip, His hands, the control of your life. Let's pray together. Father, bless this now, this invitation to the glory of our Lord. And for His sake we pray. Amen. Now as we stand to our feet, we invite you to come. On the first word, step out and come.